You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church. I want to talk this morning about the personal God. Um, And what I'm going to do, I'm going to put the spotlight and the microscope on three disciples of Jesus. Mary Magdalene, Peter, and John. We're going to look at a certain episode um, involving uh, the resurrection of Jesus again. And we're going to see that God relates to each one of them in very different and personal ways because God's a personal God. And um, he will relate to each one of us in tailor-made ways. It's very interesting to see how all of this plays out. So I'm going to read, everybody take a real deep breath because I'm going to read 16 verses, <laughs> but it's from the best book ever written. So no, that wasn't my book. This was, this was God's book. So I knew you could, I had to clear that up. So, so I'm looking at John 20 verses one through 16. I primarily read the New King James, but I've gotten so much out of the Passion Translation. Um, Brian Simmons, personal friend of mine, um, wrote it, the New Testament, from the Aramaic, so it puts a little bit different viewpoint. Um, Aramaic was the language Jesus spoke and that was used primarily among the Jews in the first century, and so it's very, very interesting to read. So here we go. Everybody ready? If you're ready, say praise the Lord six times. Six times. Okay, I know, I know what you're going to. All right. Oh, gosh, we got six from the Dickerman family over here. My goodness, I didn't know stuff like that actually worked. You can tell people what to do and they'll do it. When did that happen? <laughs> okay, if you're not praying for me, you're not paying attention. Very early Sunday morning before sunrise, Mary Magdalene made her way to the tomb. And when she arrived, she discovered that the stone that sealed the entrance to the tomb was moved away. So she went running as fast as she could to go tell Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. How many of you know who that was? John wrote that about himself. No other gospel calls him that, which I think is very interesting. The other disciple, which one? All the one Jesus loved. These guys were such real people. It's really good. She told them, they've taken the Lord's body from the tomb and we don't know where he is. So these guys weren't committed to, they weren't believing in the resurrection, were they? Then Peter and the other disciple jumped up and ran to the tomb to go see for themselves. They started out together, but the other disciple... Which one would that would be? John wanted to make this point, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. These guys' personality just comes through. He, John didn't enter the tomb but peeked in and saw only the linen cloths lying there. Then Peter came behind him and went right into the tomb Makes sense. 
He too noticed the linen cloths lying there, but the burial cloth that had been on Jesus' head had been rolled up and placed separate from the other cloths. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, there you go again, went in and after one look, he believed. Let me say that again. After one look, he believed. For until then, they hadn't understood the scriptures that prophesied that he was destined to rise from the dead. Verse 10. Puzzled, this only comes out in the Aramaic, puzzled, Peter and the other disciple then left and went back to their homes. Mary arrived back at the tomb. Now, she's the one that had been there, realized Jesus' body was gone, went to get Peter and John. They beat her back. I'm sure she was right behind them. But she arrived back at the tomb, broken and sobbing. She stooped to peer inside, and through her tears, she saw two angels in dazzling white robes, sitting where Jesus' body had been laid, one at the head and one at the feet. Dear woman, why are you crying? They asked. That's so wonderful. Mary answered, they have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where They've laid him. Then she turned around to leave, and there was Jesus standing in front of her, but she didn't realize it was him. He said to her, Dear woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? Mary answered, thinking he was only the gardener. Sir, if you have taken his body somewhere else, tell me, and I will go and... Mary, Jesus interrupted her. Turning to face him, she said, Rabboni, which means in Aramaic, my teacher. So there we have this part of the resurrection story. I have read through all these resurrection stories, and I'll be quite honest with you, it's a little bit confusing as far as the um, order of events and things that happened. But as I read this one, I can see Mary Magdalene, Peter, and John, their different reactions, the different processes they're going through. And we see how differently, how different their experiences with God are at this particular point. So just after the resurrection, the first three people who went into the empty tomb were Mary Magdalene, Peter, and John. All three were disciples. All three had I would call it at this point imperfect faith, but faith nevertheless to go to the tomb. All three different experiences. Each person reacted in a different way at the tomb. After Mary realized the tomb was empty, she went to tell the disciples that Jesus' body was gone. We see Peter and John quickly running to the tomb to see for themselves. John outruns Peter, hesitates to go into the tomb. But the Bible tells us at first, John just peeked inside. So it's really, really interesting to see these different dynamics. But Peter, when he arrives, he immediately brushes right past John, bolts headlong uh, past peeking John into the tomb. There they see the burial cloth. There they see the one that was on Jesus' head. They're all rolled up, but they're separately together. But Peter plows in, John peeks in, follows Peter in. 
They both see the empty tomb. They both see the grave clothes of Jesus. The scripture says this about John. After one look, he believed. It doesn't say that at all about Peter. But John, it says, after one look, he believed. But from the Passion Translation, we see that when Peter left, we have no idea what he was thinking. Doesn't identify any emotion. But the Passion Translation says he left puzzled. John believes Peter's puzzled. Two different experiences, two different reactions. Verse 9 in Matthew 20 also tells us that they hadn't understood the scriptures that prophesied that Jesus was destined to rise from the dead. But Mary Magdalene had a completely different experience. She too came back to the tomb. She followed Peter and John. She was looking for Jesus. But the Bible tells us when she returned, she returned in this condition, broken and sobbing. So we see there was something going on in Mary different than what was going on in Peter and in John. She came to the tomb broken and sobbing. We read the text. It says she was looking for Jesus through her tears. So there she is. Everyone's gone. Peter and John left, puzzled, believing, whatever condition. But she was looking through her tears, tears of love when she encountered the angels and then Jesus himself. Three different people, three different experiences with Jesus and his resurrection. Peter might have been puzzled. John believed, but Mary left the tomb having encountered the resurrected Jesus. All of this really grips me. Most of what I'm going to tell you this morning is found in Scripture, but it's my subjective viewpoint of it. But until you read between the lines of the Scripture sometime, the reality of what's going on won't really touch you. And I think the Lord allows us to use our imaginations to see, to think, to feel what's going on there. But Jesus, Taylor makes knowing him different and personal for each one of us because God really is a personal God. Talk about, have you received Jesus as your personal Savior? I heard preaching all my life growing up in the church, and I'm not saying these people didn't know the Lord, but I did hear a man preach one time. I could have sworn he really knew him. Do you know what I'm saying? Touched my life, changed my life. So, three people run to the tomb. Three entirely different experiences. The Passion Translation there indicates, as I mentioned this before, how Peter left the tomb. He was puzzled. Of all the disciples, Peter seems to me to be the most conflicted and troubled. He denied the Lord in a public and humiliating way, particularly since he was the most adamant in his declaration of devotion 
and courage to Jesus and in light of Jesus' clear warning that Peter would deny him three times. So Peter is coming off of that probably the most serious failure of his entire life, having given everything into this Jesus situation and then having absolutely failed Jesus, having been told he would fail, having been told the circumstances around his denial. But one thing we need to recognize is the significance of your calling will dictate how strong your challenges will be. Can you hear that? Yeah. You're going to be challenged at whatever degree God's called you. Then there's no escaping it. And when you look at Peter's life, which is, I hope Peter's kind to me when we get to heaven. Think about it. He is one of my heroes, honestly. But in thinking about this, our faith needs to be built on humility and trusting God's ability to sustain us and not in self-confidence. And later we know, if you've read the last chapter of John, Peter goes through this pretty painful restoration process with Jesus where Jesus helps Peter reaffirm his love for Jesus. And so that's the condition I think Peter was in when he was navigating this, this episode. He's still trying to figure out what's going on. He's still trying to understand his own behavior. But then when we see John, and it's interesting to me that John wrote this gospel that he outran Peter to the tomb. No other gospel mentions that small, insignificant detail. Isn't that interesting? These guys were pretty human, weren't they? Yeah, we went to the tomb, but I beat Peter by 10 yards. Peter said, yeah, but you chicken, I went on in there. You were peeping around a corner, hoping some ghost wouldn't get, I don't know what they're thinking. But. So we can see also in the last chapter of John, if you want to go read that, Peter and John really did have some kind of a competitive relationship. And we see that in the text, John describes himself as the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. So we see Peter's viewpoint of life was this reckless, bold courage, more part of his human nature than his relationship with God. And we see John's relationship here and the kind of person he was, was he didn't call himself the disciple who loved Jesus. What did he call himself? The disciple whom Jesus loved. So that's how John comes to the tomb. But then we come to Mary. And interestingly enough, no angels appear to James and John. No angels speak to James and John. No angels express interest in how they're feeling or what they're looking for. But think about this. Mary is immediately into the tomb right after James and John and sees these angels. Well, where were they when James and John were in there? I think they were there. I just don't think they had anything to say to them. Now, I'm not sure why. I'm just, 
But it's so interesting to me to see how this all works and may go together. So Mary encountered the Lord at the tomb while Peter and John didn't. Why? This is my opinion. I believe we can find the answer in another part of Mary's story over in Matthew 26. Matthew 26, verse 6, Then Jesus went to Bethany, to the home of Simon, a man Jesus had healed of leprosy. A woman came into the house holding an alabaster flask filled with expensive fragrant oil. She came right to Jesus, and in a lavish gesture of devotion, she poured out the costly oil, and it cascaded over his head as he went the table. Is that the table? When the disciples saw this, they were offended. What a total waste, they grumbled. We could have sold it for a great deal of money and given it to the poor. Jesus knew their thoughts, and he said to them, Why are you critical of this woman? Let's say that together. Why are you critical of this woman? I would have been. How about you? That was embarrassing. She wasn't even invited. But Jesus saw it differently. He knew their thoughts. And he said, why are you critical of this woman? She has done a beautiful act of kindness. I think, little side note, she has done a beautiful act of kindness. I think one of the primary tests going on today in the church, maybe even in the world, is the kindness test. And the wonderful thing about the Lord is we never ultimately flunk a test. We just keep taking it till we pass. Now, doesn't that scare you? <laughs> really? The kindness test. Paul lists, lists kindness as an apostolic virtue. An apostolic virtue. He calls it kindness. I'll go on here. Jesus says, you will always have someone poor whom you can help, but you will not always have me. When she poured the fragrant oil over me, she was preparing my body for burial, which no one understood at that point. I promise you, here it is. I promise you that when this wonderful gospel spreads all over the world, the story of her lavish devotion to me will also be mentioned in memory of her. And so that was Mary. That's the Mary that doesn't care what other people in the room think. That's the Mary who violated societal norms. That's the Mary that poured out on Jesus a lavish demonstration of love of what could likely have been her entire life's savings. And it was embarrassing. And it was humiliating. And some thought she wasted it. But she didn't waste it.
Because the idea here of waste is also connected to the idea of value. Do you understand what I'm saying here? It was waste to people who did not value what she valued. But it was not waste to her. And we don't know if she was, and, and this, this is debatable, she was a woman that Jesus had cast out seven demons. If you had seven demons and they were like real, live, real demons and not just you having a bad day, would you be happy about those things being cast out of you? Seven. Seven. What she poured out on Jesus could have been, like I said earlier, her life savings, everything she had. See, one of the purposes of the gospel is for us to give everything we have. But you don't if you don't see the value. And if you see others who do and you don't see the value, well, they're wasting their lives. I know early on in my Christian life, my mother wanted to me, me to be a dentist. I'm not going to look at people's mouths the rest of my life. Or a doctor. Mm. Not, or a lawyer, uh, uh, or an Indian chief. No, it's about, you know, but. And so when I got out of college, I didn't do any of those things. I started, I went into business and I started churches and I lived in a Christian community that was weird to my parents. And I was disinherited from some of my wealthy in-laws. Isn't that great? If we give it to him, he's just going to give it away. And see, to them, I was wasting my life. But that question is answered by value. Did I value Jesus and the call he had on my life? Or did I value more my parents' opinion of me, which I valued, but I had to make choices? Can anybody hear me this morning? What's he worth? What's his value? Then he says, wherever the gospel is preached, this story will be told. To memorialize this woman in memory of her, she demonstrated what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. You love him. And if you love him, you do the things he wants you to do. Um, You can do the things he wants you to do and not love him. Or you can even love him and still sort of fool around. You know what I'm saying? You can. And I'm a grace guy. I believe in cutting people slack, giving people passes. But I will tell you something. Some people fool around too much. Are you in or are you out? Can I be that blunt this morning? Come on. What's he worth to you? Come on. You're going to live any way you want to live? And I don't talk this way much, but I can get this way easy. You're going to live any old way you want to live, do any old thing you want to do? Are you going to recognize... Now, here's the problem. That kind of expression that I just gave 
can make you feel condemned into better behavior, and that won't work. It won't. But what will work is seeing the value of Jesus. And like this woman, she loved Jesus a lot because she had been forgiven a lot. Luke seven forty seven. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And the, and the trick here is everybody has been given, forgiven so much, but some people have no clue, no clue about how much forgiveness we need and needed and the sufferings of Jesus which was on a cosmic scale, no one can understand. Does that make any sense? How are you going to understand what it was to be Jesus and die? And bear, he became sin. Here's what happened to your sin. God gave your sin to Jesus. He died and he took it to the grave. And it was so effective, he rose again for our justification. What What it means is, for needing to be justified, it's been proven because Jesus rose from the dead. That offering, that sacrifice, however you understand that, however you view that, it was so effective that we are freely and completely forgiven. But people don't get the implications of the value and the pain and the price that was paid there. Mary wasn't one of those people. Her approach to Jesus at the tomb was different from Peter and John's. I've already read this. I'm just going to say it again. When she came to the tomb, she came broken. She came sobbing. The Bible tells us she stooped to look inside after Peter and John had left. And she saw two angels sitting where Jesus' body had been laid, one at the head, one at the feet. Here's what they said. Dear woman, why are you crying? Can you hear, can you hear in that one phrase, dear woman, why are you crying? Do, can you get a glimpse? Can you get a glimpse of heaven's compassion? Even the angels are asking her. And they all know. It's not like they don't know, Right? It's no mystery to them why she's crying, but they're asking her. There's this mercy extended. There's this reaching out to her to to somehow touch her in some way that makes a difference. They could have said, quit crying. It's okay. That's not what they're doing. Dear woman, do, do you think God thinks you're dear? He does. Dear woman, why are you crying? And then Mary tells them, well, they've taken away the Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. And I think too, Peter and John didn't see any angels. Dear woman, why are you crying? Then she turns to walk out of the tomb And there's Jesus standing right in front of her, but she didn't realize it was him. What does Jesus say to her? So verse 15, I don't know if it's still up there. 
He says, dear woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? Jesus knew both answers. But this is the personal God speaking into Mary's heart, helping her transition through pain and confusion and unbelief, whatever you want to call it. Who are you looking for? Dear woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? And Mary answered, thinking he was only the gardener. Sir, if you have taken his body somewhere else, tell me and I will go and marry. Mary. Jesus interrupts her. And the minute Mary hears Jesus say her name, she knows who he is. She knows who he is. That's the personal God. I don't know why she didn't recognize him. That happens a number of times. Luke 24 talks about it. But Jesus asked her questions she already knows the answer to. And I've wondered why, you know, this is me thinking through it. I've read this so much. And the questions Jesus asked, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? I believe Jesus wanted to give Mary an opportunity to begin processing her grief and her confusion. How many of you can hear that? And I see this. Jesus' question, why are you weeping, hints at the truth that there's an expiration date on your grieving and weeping. What does it say? Weeping shall endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Because God cares about our hurts and our wounds. Psalm 56, 8, you number my wanderings. That's talking about an aimless fugitive or an exile. God numbers my wanderings or your wanderings. Then it says, put my tears into your bottle. Hello? Put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? So if we take this verse literally for a moment, what kind of God in some mystic way stores our tears in a bottle and records them in some kind of book of remembrance? What if there are literal bottles in heaven and when you get there, it's your name, your tears. The Lord says, I saw, I was there. I captured these to prove to you. And we see in Revelation seven seventeen, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. But I believe Jesus wanted to hear Mary express her love for him. Jesus, knowing who she's looking for, ask her, who are you looking for? God wants to be wanted. Say that with me, please. God wants to be wanted. There was a preacher years ago that used to say, God appreciates being appreciated. And how we respond to him is more important than we know. And I think there's this issue too about being thankful in times of trouble and heartache or highly valued in heaven. There's something that happens. I've heard of another preacher say that once life's over and we're in heaven and we're in that realm where there is no pain and there is no suffering, anyone could be thankful and anyone could praise him. 
But the thing that touches God's heart the most is as we're going through what we're going through, not ignoring it, not denying it, but making choices to still thank God, still appreciate who he is, and lean on him through whatever it is we're going through until we're through it. And everything, give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. How many of you want to know what the will of God is for your life? In everything, give thanks. And that is one of the processes that wars against depression, negativity, and self-centeredness. How many of you have dealt with any depression, negativity, or self-centeredness this last year or so? Two on the front row. The rest of you, you should be up here. No. Of course so. But being thankful wars against these things that are warring against our minds. And sometimes you need it to to do it the most when you feel the least like doing it. It becomes an access point into the peace of God and the presence of God. And it says there in the Psalms that we enter his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. And so there's, you know, people have made a lot about that and made it sort of trite, but it's true. It's true. I was thinking about this too. When Mary thought Jesus was the gardener, she underestimated who he was. Be easy to think he was the gardener since the tomb was in a garden. And Mary didn't believe in the resurrection at this, but she was getting there fast. But the thing that really strikes me is that Mary underestimated who Jesus was. And I think that needs to register. Have you underestimated Jesus? He's the risen Lord. He's the one who defeated sin, death, the devil on our behalf. And here's another thing that struck me. Jesus interrupted Mary. That's what it says. Mary, Jesus interrupted her. The gospel is geared to being a divine interruption in every life. Come on. Jesus interrupted Mary's sadness and confusion by revealing himself. She knew who he was when he spoke her name. I am amazed. You know, let's say Jesus raised from dead, what, 33 AD? Is that close? Is that in? You know, by 70 AD, there was no Jerusalem. There was no Jerusalem. Jesus had prophesied there won't be one stone left on another. You know how many Christians were in Jerusalem when the Romans demolished it? Virtually no Christians died there because they all believed Jesus' prophecies. I don't know how I got there. (laughs) Oh, here's what I was going to say. With all that looming, guess how Jesus responds when he appears to people? One translation, he says, hello, everyone. (laughs) Hello, everyone. Oh, by the way, not one stunt. No. Hello, everyone. How you doing? Another place he says, peace, you're scared to death. 
On multiple occasions, the scripture tells us the apostles are behind locked doors before they realize Jesus is raised from the dead because they're afraid for their lives. He appears in the room and he says, hello, everyone. Peace. Keep rejoicing. How do you process that? That wouldn't only interrupt whatever I was doing at the time. It interrupts my thought processes about how to view life. But the gospel is good news. Somebody please say good news. Good news. Good news intends to interrupt our lives, to turn us away from confusion and defeat and sadness to some confidence and some joy. Lord, interrupt us with who you are. Shake us up. Get our attention. Refresh us. Change our perspective. We have underestimated you, Jesus. You know, when Mary left the tomb the first time to tell the disciples that Jesus was alive, it says this. After she had seen Jesus, she ran to tell his disciples who were all emotionally devastated and weeping. Say that. Emotionally devastated and weeping. Excitedly, well, Mary interrupts their weeping and devastation. She says excitedly, he's alive. I saw him. It doesn't compute. You can be so deep into your deal, you don't see what's available. You don't see what's there. He's alive. We said it three times. We said it three times. We said it three times. Amen, amen, amen. <laughs> Thomas made us. Some of you actually said it. <laughs> oh, my. He's alive and I've seen him. But after even after hearing this, they didn't believe her. You know, that, that makes me feel so wonderful about the struggles I've had in my faith. But the guys in charge didn't do very well initially, did they? They didn't. They all struggled. There's something so important about the struggle in your faith, I'll tell you. There's a relationship between refusing to give up and how strong you will ultimately become in your faith. I've said this any number of times. You really have to, you've got to give Jesus a chance. Now, that sounds sort of stupid, but no, you can't stop. You can't go back. So, what's my conclusion? What about Peter? Well, he was puzzled. John, well, he believed. What about Mary? She'd been forgiven a lot. She loved a lot. And it's so important for us to love him. Love him. Know how much he loves us and then love him. In Colossians, it says, set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. Set your affection, another translation says, set your affection on things above not on things in the earth. Gosh, I think about all the polarization, all the 
bitterness and the anger and the hostility. I made a terrible mistake Saturday morning before Don and I were going to pray together. I got on my phone and watched the news. That's, that's, and so when I went downstairs, it took me 20 minutes to unprocess. Do you know what I'm talking about? Now, I, we need to know what's going on, that's for sure. But what culture do we... Ask yourself this question. What culture do you reflect or exude the culture of the kingdom of God, the, the power of the presence of Jesus, or the culture of 2021? Which one? You need to ask yourself that question. You do. I've had some lofty goals since I met the Lord. But one of my primary goals now Personal goals, there are other goals. Personal goals is to be a kind person, to be generous to people in my relationships with them. To not spend my time finding fault with everybody. I tell you, you go counter to the culture and at some point somebody will take notice. Somebody will take notice and want to know, what do you have? What do you have? What you got? What's that going on in you? Or we can just be a complainer. We can rail. We can do all that stuff. And nobody's listening. You know what I'm saying? Nobody's listening to that stuff. Because if they were looking for something more, and that's what you gave them, they walked away. Or they tuned you off. Or they turned you out. But if you got a reality with Jesus, a real life with Jesus, and it affects the way you think and it affects the way you talk and it affects the way you act, people are going to want to know. How many of you know that's true? Come on, that's right. Okay. 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 Oh, man, that's better than okay. Jesus, we love you. We just love you, Jesus. Oh, my goodness. There are so many distractions. Help us, Lord. Help our focus. Help our confidence. Continue to impart to us, Lord, vision, faith, confidence, all those things. And we thank you so much for what you did on the cross for the forgiveness of sins and for the resurrection and for the power of the Spirit. And Holy Spirit, we're asking you to make yourself known to us in powerful ways. Touch our lives, Holy Ghost. Amen, amen, amen. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church. 